The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. I'm excited to uh, look at God's Word with you. Let's pray, though. We need help. I need help. As soon as I... There we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your Word, Lord, and sometimes parts of your Word can be difficult for us to understand or they're laden with baggage that shouldn't be there from our past or some experience. Lord, we pray as we look at your Word this morning, the Holy Spirit would just be with us to teach us deeply, freshly, uh, what this word means, what you intend for us. Lord, help us to see it as children of God through Jesus Christ. And help us love what you say here, Lord, because we love you, because we trust you, because you're a great king. So Lord, help, help me to preach this faithfully, please. And Lord, speak to each one of us, including myself, speak to our minds, our hearts, to trust you, to love you for your glory and for our joy and our freedom in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're working through the Ten Commandments. We began last week. If you want to, if you miss that, you want to check it out. It's on our website. But you might ask, working through the Ten Commandments, why would you do that? Well, last week we saw some big reasons. You saw those reasons in verses one and two. The God who has created all things designed us in His image for our good. The God who saves us from our slavery by His grace. He has spoken. And so these commands describe what it looks like to live in relationship with him. You know, he's, he's saved us out of slavery. These commands describe what it looks like to get the slavery out of the slave. So this morning we come to the second command. Um, don't make any graven images. Don't make any idols. And at first glance, I, this one can be a tough one, it seems, it might, it might seem redundant or outdated. Um, redundant, because the first command said, no other gods before me, and then the second command says, no idols. And we're thinking, well, didn't you just say that? Isn't that the same thing? It could also seem outdated in our context. You know, maybe one of you is feeling really awkward right now because you were making statues this morning in the garage. <laughs> and now you've been exposed, and you're thinking, oh, no. Um, but no, I, I doubt it, right? In our context, we're modern people. We like science. Nobody does this anymore, right? Do people do this anymore? So it, it, make an idol, it seems uh, outdated. Well, of course, if we dig a little deeper, I think we'll see this command is, is not redundant at all, and it certainly is not outdated, so I want to see four things, four main things with you this morning. First, what the second commandment means. I mean, we've got to start there. What is this actually saying? See what it means. Number two, we're going to see why it's so important. This is one of those commands that in this list of commands in Exodus, it doesn't just give the command, it gives an explanation. So we've got to pay attention to that. So we're going to see why it's so important. Three, we just want to think a little bit about some of the ways we break it. There's a host of ways, but we'll just think about some. And then fourth, the main way to keep it, all right, for our freedom. So we're going to see what it means, why it's so important, some ways we break it, the main way to keep it 
for our freedom. So here we go. Number one, what does it mean? As we try to unpack this command of what it means, I think it's helpful to point out two layers to it. Two layers. The first one's the most obvious. You see that in verse 4. So I hope you're following along here in your Bibles. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. So, so what do you think? Is, is the command talking about works of art? Is it talking about Rembrandt paintings? Is it, is it talking about drawings of Jesus in children's Bibles? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Uh, one reason that should be obvious to us is because you keep reading the Torah. God's going to tell amazing artists to do all sorts of artistry in images of created things. So he's, he's not saying don't do that kind of artwork or that kind of um, graven image. No, what he's talking about is making an object or an image and then setting it apart to have some sort of special spiritual efficacy where this thing now somehow represents God to you or mediates God to you, helps you get closer to God, and then you use that item as part of your worship. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't do that. You see, that's what it means when he says, don't bow down to it. Don't serve it. Don't pray to it. So don't make something, a picture, an, an item, an image, and, and somehow believe that it is closer to God or specially represents God and then worship using that item. Don't do that. And, you know, for the original audience especially, this command would be incredibly challenging and culturally controversial. So controversial. Because for this original audience, the command struck right at the heart of a cultural value of the world in which they lived. Seemingly every religion, religion ever conceived of at this time used images for worship. They all do this. In fact, the outside world would say to the Israelites, what do you mean don't make images for use in worship? That's how you worship. What other way would you worship? How do you know where the God is or what the God is like or know the God has taken your offerings? What do you mean don't worship this way? And, and so, you know, are we to think that the ancient world thought that little statue was actually God? No, not at all. They would have known the statue was not the God itself. But they would have commonly believed that, that, that the idol was infused somehow with the presence or the manifestation of God and therefore coming near to the idol or venerating the idol. That's how you worshiped the God or came close to the God. And so the living God here says, the one who just saved them out of slavery in Egypt, he says, that might be the way everybody else does it. It's not the way you do it if you worship me. Do you see how it, you see how it sets his people apart? It sets his people apart. You, you worship me in a way that's different than everybody else does it. It not only sets his people apart, it sets himself apart in a remarkable way. So think about this. Every single image a human could ever make, of course, is somehow going to be locked within creation itself. It's going to look like something in creation. And even if we make it some, I've been privileged to travel to other countries, I've seen some crazy-looking idols. 
But, but even if you make some new conglomeration, it's still putting together things from this created order. It's got eyes, or it's got hands, or it's got a nose, or it looks like animals. And it's, and it's made of something here created, obviously. And do, do you see what happens with, with pagan worship like that, with human-invented worship? All of a sudden, we're, we're doing that thing. Read Romans 1 later. We're worshiping created things. And here's the problem with that. Every time we do that, we diminish the God, the true God, who is outside of his creation. He transcends his creation. There's nothing we could possibly make that gets anywhere close to representing what the real God is actually like. It's too small. It's too, it's too limited. So God says, you don't worship me that way because... Um, I'm setting you apart, and I'm showing you how I'm set apart. Another, so, so how are we to worship God then? That's, that's what the Israelites would wonder. What? Everybody does this? How are we supposed to do this? Well, when Moses goes up on, on this mountain, if you read Exodus, Exodus 19, the, the whole section there, when Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God, does he come down from the mountain with a statue saying, I've seen God, and this is what he looks like? No. What does he come down with? He comes down with tablets that have words written on them. He doesn't say, I've seen God and this is what he's like. He said, I've heard God and this is what he said. That's just the entire difference. That's just an amazing thing. How are we to know we worship the real God? How are we to worship the real God? tells you right there, we do it according to his word. God has spoken. And his word alone is the thing that can actually allow you to know who he is and all he has revealed himself to be. And his word alone is, tells us how then we ought to worship him. So, uh, you know, as, as, we, as we land on that, we realize what this command is about. Worship me according to my word. You know, if you, if you do that, you find an amazing thing. God says, don't make any image of me for your worship. You know, according to the Bible, uh, do you know where you see the image of God? Where do you see the image of God? It's you and it's me. It's human beings. This is really quite amazing. Speaking of children's Bibles, I was reading it with Zeke the other day, and there's this picture uh, showing us the idolatry of Israel. And here in this, little, in this little picture, in this children's Bible, you've got this piece of stone, and it's being carved into a, uh, an ox in this case. And on one side, you have a dude with his carving tools. Okay? And so who's over who? Who's greater than who? who? Who's more the image of God, the human being or the piece of rock? The human being. And yet on the other side of the piece of rock is the king of Israel bowing to it and worshiping it. Friends, when you worship idols, you demean yourself every time. When you worship created things, you demean yourself every time. Do you realize it's the living God who has made you and me in his image? And if we want to be truly what God has designed us to be in his image, the way to do this fully is to hear his word. Believe his word and obey his word. That's what it means. 
made in his image, representing him to the word, to the world. That's our design and our freedom. So the, so the first layer here to this command, don't make an image, fill it with spiritual meaning and worship God through it. No, instead, worship God by believing and obeying his word. That's what the command means. That's the first layer. Here's the second layer. And there's a story a couple of chapters away that illustrates the second layer of this command. So turn to Exodus 32 if you want, or it'll be on the overheads. Exodus 32, verse 1. This is such a fascinating account. Look at Exodus 32, 32, uh, starting with verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. First thing to notice, insecurity. Do you know their insecurity? Where's Moses? We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. We don't know how to get there. Insecurity. Make us gods to go before us. We need to know who we are, what we live for, where, where we're going to go. And, and Moses, he's, he's been gone too long. We can't trust that anymore. We have an insecurity. We have a need. Just pause right there. I can't go into this for long. But no, the reason you make your idol today is because you're trying to fill your insecurity apart from the living God. That's how this works. Second thing to note, look at the power of public opinion. Did you see what they did? They came to Aaron and, and the Hebrew kind of impresses this. They're surrounding him. They're forcing him, make us gods. Aaron's put in a tight spot, isn't he? He knows that's not right. Um, he knows that's not the way to roll. We've already heard the Ten Commandments. But the pressure of the people saying, let's go a different way, he follows their lead. I don't know if you've noticed that's still true today. There's always going to be pressure for you and I to move away from worshiping God according to his word, okay? So insecurity, the pressure of public opinion. Now look at verses, starting in verse 4. So Aaron, he collects all their gold. And verse 4, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, this is fascinating, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? The Lord. You see what's happening here? As they make this cow, they're not claiming to worship a different God. They're claiming to worship Yahweh, the God who saved them from Egypt, the God who's revealed himself in the Bible. They're claiming to worship him while inventing a new way to worship. Do you see that? They're claiming to worship him while inventing a new way to worship. And as they invent a new way to worship, what happens? Well, Yahweh now becomes a God of Aaron's invention. Imagine being Aaron, right? The people pressured you into this. Make us gods. And then here you go. You got all this gold. Okay, you ready? And now you're like, what is God like to me? Yeah? What is God like to me? What if you were Aaron? 
What, what are you going to make? What is, what is God like to you? Well, Aaron thought, you know, I'm going to be really, I'm going to be inventive and fresh here. And God to me is like a golden baby cow. And we laugh and we should laugh. Okay? But anytime anybody says, God to me is like, da 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 da, and it doesn't fit with the Bible, you should laugh. Because you're making up a pretend God. And, and, you know, Aaron, for his time, he was accurate in a small way. Why would you pick a cow back then? Well, the ox, nobody is as strong as the ox in that way of thinking. So, so he's saying, our God is strong. He just destroyed Pharaoh. And there's some people who say that part of uh, Egyptian worship, uh, Pharaoh sometimes was considered to being a strong, a strong cow. And so the strong, our God is the strong ox. He's strong and he beat up all the others. And so there's a grain of truth, right? Yeah, he's strong. But as, you know, as fresh, as inventive as Aaron must have been feeling, his, event, his invention's anything but original. Guess who else sees God as being like an ox in Aaron's time? Everyone. The Egyptians, a little bit. Baal worship, a little bit. And so Aaron's like, oh, I'm going to be inventive. I'm going to be fresh. And I'm going to show you God. And guess what? Guess what the God he invents looks like? It looks like the values of his surrounding culture. That's what it looks like. So here's the lesson, and this is the heart of the second command. When we invent how we will worship God, we will inevitably invent a different God entirely. I say that again, because you, you gotta hear this. That's why it's so important. When we invent how we will worship God, we inevitably invent a different God entirely. So that even though we say, the Israelites said, we're worshiping Yahweh, Yahweh himself says, no, you're not. It's a different God. So it's true in our day. When we say, we'll invent who God is and how we're worshiping him, God says, you're not worshiping a real God at all. You have invented a new God. And you can always bet that that God will look like the values of the surrounding culture. So here's what the second command means. First level, make no images for worship, but worship God according to his word. The second level is worship, the God, worship God the way he says, or inevitably you'll be worshiping a different God. So it's a big deal. Now let's see why it's so important. Why it's so important. We see this in verses Exodus 20, verses 5 to 6. You shall not bow down to serve them, uh, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So why, why not make images? Why not invent our worship? What was God's answer there in verse 5? I am a what? He's jealous. He's jealous. So we know, right, that there are many commands in the New Testament, don't be jealous. Most jealousy, especially as we experience it, is wrong, right? It comes from offended selfishness or something like that. But there is a kind of jealousy that's absolutely righteous. And it's when covenant love is violated. It's when covenant love is violated. So we saw this last week, reformer John Calvin, um, those words in the first commandment where God says, don't bring any other gods before my face, 
it's, he was getting at, that, that command gets at, we like, to wor- you know, we like to worship God and a little something else. And, and Calvin says that would be like a wife bringing a boyfriend home to meet her husband. Be like, hey, I want you to meet somebody. He's great. And any good husband would say, no. <laughs> no. And in fact, if you knew that was even a possibility, any good husband would be filled with what? Jealousy, a righteous jealousy, because this is covenant love, Okay. In this illustration of marriage, which is a common illustration of the Bible for God's relationship with his people, there's a covenant love. So my wife deserves a special, exclusive, lifelong, intimate love from me. And if I even begin to give that kind of love to anybody else, rightfully, she should be jealous and, and vice versa. And so, so we see here that our conclusion on the second command was correct, because I told you the second command means if you invent your worship, inevitably you're inventing a different God. That's right, and here's how we know, because God says if you invent your worship, I'm jealous. Well, why would God be jealous if we invent worship? Because we're worshiping a different God. It's not him anymore. And here we both have the, the awesome, the fearful, the, priv- the fearful words, the privilege of seeing that God is jealous for our hearts. You know, uh, you don't date Jesus, right? You don't go a little Jesus, a little, a little here, there. Uh, no, it, to know Jesus is to be devoted to him exclusively as your Lord, as your King, as your God. And so God is ex- he's jealous for every part of you, for your mind, your heart, uh, your, your worldview, your actions, your deeds, your mouth. He wants all of you. He's jealous for you. And so that's part of why the second command is so important. He's jealous for our exclusive worship. A couple more thoughts on why self-invented worship is so despised by God. Uh, Number one, self-invented worship always demeans who God really is. So author uh, Jen Wilkin is her name. She she writes about how the image of the golden calf lied about God. Because if you take an image and use it to worship God, it's going to teach you something about God. So look what Jen says. The idol is small. There it is. But God is what? Immense. The idol is inanimate. It can't move. But God is spirit. He's dynamic. The, the idol is location-bound, here and only here. But God, everywhere fully present. Uh, God, the idol is created. But God... Uncreated. The, the idol's new and fresh. God's eternal. And so on. Here's, here's more. The idol's impotent. Can't do anything. It just sits there. God is omnipotent. The idol's, the idol's destructible. God is indestructible. The, the idol's of minor value, but God is of infinite value. The idol's blind, deaf, and mute, but God sees, hears, and speaks. See, do you see what happens when, when you invent your worship, especially in this way? And now you're saying, hey, everybody, worship through this. You're telling lies about God. You're saying, thing, you're saying that God is less than he is. That always happens when we invent our worship. Aaron says, this is your God, and everything about that idol is not actually God. But not only when we invent our worship do we demean what God is truly like, when we invent our, wor- our worship, we, deceives, uh, we deceive others for their destruction. 
When we invent our own worship, we deceive others for their destruction. Listen to the weight of these words. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Well, what does this mean? Number, number one, iniquity. What's, what's iniquity? It's intentional rebellion against God. So God says, if you disobey this command, you're intentionally rebelling against me. But he's gonna visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children in some way. What does this mean? Does this mean that God punishes the innocent for the guilt of others? I don't think so. Look, look at Ezekiel 18.20, for instance. Um, really clarifies this issue. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. All right, there it is. Answer for how you live. But also, this, this text in Exodus 20, it reminds us we're communal beings, aren't we? We're connected to our families, to our communities, to our culture. And, and that's hard for Americans. We are individualistic. And, and praise God for seeing the value of an individual. There's importance there. But we get so individualistic that we just think of ourselves as like lone islands, Inventing ourselves, making ourselves, and everybody else is up to them. Well, this, this reminds us of this biblical reality that we're actually quite impressionable. You remember Aaron the high priest when he had the chance to make God in his own image. What did he make? Something that looked just like the gods he grew up with in Egypt. He was deeply impressed, influenced by his culture. And so we realize here that we are tied to families, communities, cultures. We are formed by our fathers and what we tell each other about the big questions of life, who we are and why we're here and what the good life is really about. We influence and affect other people deeply. And so when we, our families, especially our churches, when we invent our own worship and we teach our children, our churches about a diminished God or a less than a biblical God, we influence others with that. We're teaching idolatry. We're teaching idolatry. And this text shows you idolatry is contagious. We pass it down. We pass it down. I teach my kids about God all the time. Yeah, when I'm teaching them on, t on purpose and when I'm not doing anything on purpose at all and I influence them. God help me. And we think of ways we were, we were influenced by the teachings, our cultures, our schools, our, our families. Was what, was, was what all these voices were teaching us, were they, were they honest about God and what life's all about? Were they honest about the gospel? Did they teach you to know the living God and worship him according to his word, or did they lead you astray? This is the story of Israel, isn't it? When we break the second command, not only do we deserve God's judgment for remaking him, we lead others into God's judgment by bringing them along with us. That's the story of Israel. Uh, read, this, read the story of King Jeroboam in 1 Kings. 
Okay, the kingdom splits. Jeroboam has a political problem because the temple is in Judah and he now reigns over Israel. And you can see his political problem. He doesn't want everybody leaving home to have to go worship the real God. That's going to be an issue. So what does he do? Does he say, God, I'm going to trust you, trust your word. You're going to provide for me. No, you know what he does? Exodus 32, part two. He makes two golden cows. He invents a new way to worship God. And as you read through kings, that's what king after king after king after king did. Israel became just like the nations and it led to their idolatry. That, the story of Israel in the book of Kings is the warning of the second command coming true. But on the other hand, you see the promise. You see that God's mercy is so much greater uh, than his justice, that his grace triumphs. You get the part about generations, um, paying out the iniquity of the fathers uh, for, for three and four generations. But verse six, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. So, so is this supposed to be like a math equation, you know? your great-great-great-grandpa wasn't a Christian, you're like, oh, I can't be one because I'm still in the third generation. No, it's ridiculous, right? This, this is not demeaning um, God's salvation or the, or the importance of your choices. I mean, even here it says, um, the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Strong words. Why do you think we invent our own worship? Why do we resist worship according to God's word? Because we don't like the God of the Bible. <laughs> it's too hard. He's too holy. Too much confrontation. He wants me to be too set apart from my world. He, he asked for a lot. Let's soften this up a little. <laughs> no, that, that ends up leading to idolatry. But, but look at the promise. This is our freedom, verse 6. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. To worship God according to his word is to rest in his grace, the grace that saves you out of slavery, and is to delight in who he reveals himself to be and how he's designed life for you. It's your freedom. You know his steadfast love forever. This is an invitation. So just review where we've been. Number one, first command. Worship God as he said to worship him. Otherwise, you're inventing a new God. The reason it's so important, it's a matter of life and death for our community. It's a matter of life and death for our families, for our churches. It's a matter of life and death for our community. How do we break it today? How do we break the second commandment today? Well, you know, I, I made a little quip. Most of you probably weren't making statues in your garage, and so you're like, sweet, haven't broken the command. Until you think about what it really means. <laughs> How do we break this today? How do you break this today? When God says, worship me according to my word. Well, there's a host of answers to this. I just want to challenge you today. Write down two or three ways you're tempted to break this command yourself. Think about it. Talk about it with somebody else. There's no way I can get at everything, but I'm going to mention a few ways I think it's common to break this command. Number one is just the, the plain surface level obviousness of worshiping through images. That's a way this command is broken. Uh, years ago, I was at a church service where they brought out a large metal crucifix 
And there was Jesus on it, a figure of Jesus on the cross. And people came out onto the aisle, kneeled down, and kissed the feet of Jesus on the cross. And for me, that's a hard no way. No way. I have no problems of pictures of Jesus on a cross in many, many contexts, right? No problem at all. But I'm not worshiping through it. No way. And think about it. Doesn't that demean Jesus? Is Jesus still hanging on a cross? No. He's not only sorrow and loss. Does Jesus need to be carried around for you to worship? Need to be carried around for you to worship him by the special person who brought it to you? No. No, Jesus died and rose and reigns in joy at the right hand of the Father. And that thing, that's not him. And, the, and, and what about just this? The Bible never commands me to kiss statues in worship, but it does say something about no images in worship. Let's not break the command that way. The two, here we, here we get a little more punchy, okay? We break this command when we let our preferences be an authority on how we understand who God is when we let our preferences be the authority for how we understand who God is. And man, if this isn't our cultural moment. You ever heard this before? I could never believe in a God who... Or to me, God is like... Sometimes God, somebody doesn't like the idea of God as father or of God as king or that God would judge. No, I want to be patient, compassionate. It's true. Some, some truths about God can be hard to grasp for sure or uncomfortable at first. So we want to work through those things. Fine. But I'm just saying if our perceptions or preferences become the authority for who God is to me, we just became a bunch of little errands. If our preferences are the authority on who God is to us or how we worship him, it'll no longer be the real God we're worshiping, but projections of our own desires. And that's the modern day, isn't it? Sociologists tell us that's the modern worldview. Christian Smith, sociologist, says the most common religion in America, no matter what you say your religion is, is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Basically means this, I should generally be a nice person, therapeutic. God exists mainly for me to be happy. Deism. Yeah, there's a God out there. I don't really know who he is. He's not really involved in my life. That's what most people believe. It's breaking the second command. It's not the real God. It's a God of our own invention. Number three, some brief thoughts on church. Brief thoughts on church. So if you read the New Testament at all, a main way we worship God is through participation, what? In a local church. So a few thoughts on that. Number one, a lot of people have just given up on participation in a local church. There's a host of reasons for that. Some of them I can empathize with. But, but you hear it, you see it. Sports are my church. I've had somebody literally tell me the softball field is my church. Nature is my church. I, just, I go for walks at the beach. Nature is my church. Family time is my church. It's when I spend time with my family. Listen, I, there's very few people who like sports, nature, and family more than me. <laughs> I love all of these things very, very much. The big question is, if Jesus is your Lord, how did he tell you to worship him? And if you read the New Testament with an open mind at all, he told you to do it through participation in a local church. And so if you say, I don't need that, 
You are inventing your own worship. And inevitably, you will invent a new God entirely. Because it's at church, right? Especially we hear God's word preached, celebrate the sacraments appropriately, live in loving, accountable ability with other believers. And that's how, that, we need that. We need that so much. And if we don't have it, our God will look, it'll look just like me and my preferences and my culture. And I'll lead my children astray. Another thought about church. Number one, it's essential. Number two, it's tempting to be a crowd-pleasing church, isn't it? If you've, had a, if you've ever been a part of leadership of a church, I mean, you could feel that. What do we do to fill the seats? Or how do I make sure I don't offend the people who happen to be filling the seats so they'll come back? Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Listen, do I want you to be bored? No, I don't want you to be bored. I don't want you to be bored. Is worship about your entertainment? It is not about your entertainment. Friends, if you're looking for entertainment, I'm pretty sure you can find something a little spicier than this. <laughs> right? It's not about your entertainment. And listen, think about it. Aren't images and videos easier and more entertaining than words? easier to watch a show than to listen to a sermon. It's way easier to look at social media than it is to read a book. And yet, how has God revealed himself to us? Words. Christian worship is going to be word-based, word-founded, because the goal is not ultimately your entertainment. It's that God would be pleased as his word is taught and we understand, believe, and delight in it. That's the point. And so when churches lean too hard into entertainment, they're breaking the second commandment. And they're giving you a diminished God. Or how about, and I'm not sure about the right word for this, progressive church or a liberal church. It's the idea of where um, basic Christian things the Bible obviously and explicitly says about who God is, about who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross, about how you're saved through him and him alone, and about how what the life he calls you to looks like, especially in our day on issues of sexuality. When a, when a church takes God's word, and we see obviously that this is what God has said, and then they say, well, he didn't really mean that, on a host of theological or practical issues. Just like Aaron, they're making a new God, and the new God looks a lot like the values of the surrounding culture. It's breaking the second commandment. So what does that mean for us? I mean, we just, we want to have a heart that, right? We want to have a heart that takes this, because we love God, our King, so much, that we want to know him through his word. We want to believe his word. We want to obey his word. We want to worship him as he has said so that we can enjoy the freeing of having the real thing, our great God. Uh, the, the fourth main way we break the second commandment, worshiping God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Worshiping God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. How has God told us to worship him? Can you come before Jesus Christ based on your own goodness? Or can you come before God based on your own goodness? Hey, I'm good enough for you, right? I'm better than my worst neighbor. 
Is that the standard God is going to use for you? No, it's not, right? If, you're, if we're honest, right? Are you, if you had moments of honesty with yourself, do you realize you don't keep your own standards? It's important for me to remember, right? There's this verse in Ecclesiastes that was stabbing me the other day, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it basically went, don't get too mad when you hear other people said bad things about you. And then it says, haven't you popped off a couple times too? <laughs> it's like, true, okay? I don't even keep my own standards, is my point. How much more do I not keep God's standard of holiness and righteousness and perfection? I mean, even just this command, we're only looking at one of the 10, worship me the way I say. I've broken that. Haven't you? I haven't wanted God according to his word. I've wanted my own preferences. So I can't come to God on my own goodness. That'll only be justice. No, here's what we do. Here's the way to keep the command. Number one, let's confess how we've broken it. Ask God to show you, you know? Ask this question of our own hearts. Where have I been happy to invent things for my own comfort instead of submission to God's word? Where have I, know, I know God is saying something in his word and I don't like it, so I push it to the side. Where have I flirted with cultural inventions about who God is like? We want to see that. We've broken it. And then we want to repent, and we repent by looking to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Remember that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh in order to be with us, to save us. You know, it's interesting. Have you ever noticed this? In the entire Bible, nothing is ever said about how Jesus looks, except for that he was nothing much to look at. You think about this image, this idea of image versus word. What if we were told in the Bible about what Jesus looks like? Oh my gosh. You look like Jesus. Yeah. And we, we all have our paintings, and, and I hope you know, right? In every play you ever saw, in every TV show you ever saw, just get it in your mind. That's not Jesus. Especially if he's really cute. It's not Jesus. But you see that the Bible does not emphasize the image like the physical image. And yet, what does the Bible tell you about Jesus Christ? Who is the true image of God? It's him. Listen to what Jesus said, John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has what? Seen the Father. How do you see Jesus today? How do you see him? Is it watching the TV show? Is it looking at a picture on the wall? No. Read his word. See him in the gospels. See what he's done in the New Testament. See him for all he is and believe the truth and delight in it and you'll see him with the eyes of your heart. He's the true image of God. You know, not only are, are these 10 commandments uh, a picture of what, it, what it's like to, to be in relationship to God. Most beautifully, they're a portrait of Jesus Christ himself. And I love that so much. You want to see what Jesus is like? Look at the Ten Commandments. Because guess who it is that never had any gods before him and that always worshiped God perfectly according to his word? That's Jesus. It's Jesus. When, when he's tempted by Satan himself... What does Jesus shout back at the tempter? 
the word of God. Jesus has kept the second commandment for me and for you, those who have broken it. Not only that, he went to the cross in our place for our breaking of this command. The wrath of God we deserve for our rebellion was poured out on him as our substitute so that through faith in him we could be counted righteous as if we'd always kept this command and be totally forgiven of all the ways we haven't. Look at Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God, what, spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who's the ultimate word of God, it's Jesus. His son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the image of God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isn't that wonderful? And now through him, we can delight in and keep this command. Because as you trust in Jesus Christ, look what, look what God is now doing in your life. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. Who is that? If you trust in Christ, that's you. And that's me, that God would write the character of Jesus into our minds and our hearts as we worship him through his son according to his word. How does this happen? Look at Colossians 1.28. What do we do here at church? Him we proclaim. Who are we talking about? Jesus. What do we do with the knowledge of Jesus? We proclaim it. Warning everyone sometimes. Teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, and what's that last phrase? Mature in Christ. It's the same thing, that you would look like Jesus. That you would look like Jesus that's how we keep this command. We repent of our sin, we look to Jesus, we trust in him, and we worship our Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit according to this word, and God himself does this in us. He renews us to look like Jesus together as God's people. And friends, that's freedom. It's freedom. So may we because of the grace of God for us in Jesus Christ, delight in his commands, worship him, not according to our own preferences or designs, but through his son, according to his word, and then we'll know the blessing of his freedom, God's steadfast love forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these words, hopefully they were your words, and that by your spirit they would impress our minds and our hearts, that we would hear you speak. Um, we don't rely, Lord, on wanting to be entertained or having our preferences tickled.
but we rely on you and we rely on Christ. And so I just pray that you here by your spirit would give us a delight in Christ and his perfection and how he alone can save us through faith in him. And that as we trust in him, your spirit would move on us to have a desire for your word, a delight in you according to your word. And that as we submit to your word and feast on your word through Christ together, we would look like Jesus more and more in this community. We pray this for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fofcrc.com.